Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday november 16th 2007 this week episode 59 comes to you from studio b in coriopolis pa my name is joe hughes or radio joe and back with me here in the studio this week is my co-host the z-man cliff slotnick hey joe how are you great cliff good to have you back in the berg and with us is the cyber jockey cj zach slotnick expects the Spanish Inquisition. Hey, Joe. How are you? Good morning, CJ. All right. First of all, check us out on the www.iaqradio.com website. We've got a couple new things there as far as uh, getting on to the show, more information about the show. We'll be updating that regularly. Secondly, if you'd like to get your IAQ Council credits, they're available by emailing me here at uh, joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you some credits for listening to the show. We'll send you out a little quiz. You fill it out, send it back to us, and you're good to go. Today's segments include the microband trivia quiz. We've got Stephen Richford from Richford's Fire and Flood in the U.K. joining us. So we're getting a little international perspective today. We've got the IE Connections, What's News with Mr. Glenn Fellman. We've got the roundup following all of that. And from there, let's go and thank our sponsors. I'll start with Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. Last but not least, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Okay, to contact the show, you go to the TalkShoe.com website or the IAQRadio.com website. Follow the directions for contacting the show. Get yourself a PIN number if you'd like to uh, text message us. Or now they have the option where you can just hit one, I believe, CJ. And you yep, can that's just, right, uh, Joe. Call directly in. Makes it a lot easier. Our show ID is 1547. We also appreciate suggestions. We'll take uh, questions. Or request if you email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or Cliff Zlotnick, Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at unsmoke.com. You can also check out the uh, microband trivia quizzes and etc. at the iaqradio.com site. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to my co-host for the microband trivia challenge. Congratulations go out to Darren Hadima for answering last week's trivia question correctly, defining a hypocost as an ancient form of central heating. Darren's prize for successfully answering the trivia question is on its way to him. Remember, you can win cool prizes by successfully answering microband trivia questions. You can phone in your answer, fax it in, email it in, or answer questions online at the IEQ website. Zach, the envelope, please. The microband trivia question for Friday, November 16th, 2000, 
and 7 deals with history. This past Sunday was Veterans Day in the United States and Remembrance Day in the UK. Author Stephen Ambrose wrote a book which centers around the World War II experiences of the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army. The book and subsequent mini-television series are named Band of Brothers. The trivia question for today is who coined the phrase Band of Brothers? We few, we happy few, we Band of Brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. All right. Thank you, Cliff. That was uh, overdue. We needed to make sure we honored the veterans here on IAQ Radio. We weren't on last week. Uh, well, we were on, but we were on before Veterans Day, and always great to honor those veterans. Now, turning it back to a veteran so that you can do the introduction for Mr. Richford, if you would. Britannia, Britannia, you are cool. Take a trip, prisons ever, ever, ever shall be hip, 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 hip. This afternoon's guest is Stephen Richford, a hip Brit. He's the CEO of Richford's Fire and Flood based in Cornwall, southwest England. In 1980, he established and developed Richford's Fire and Flood initially as a regional business, but more recently as a national service specialist provider. Stephen has been awarded Certified Restore CR and Water Loss Specialist WLS designations by the Restoration Industry Association. Stephen is a co-founder of the British Damage Management Association, or BDMA. He headed up the education committee that created the BDMA education syllabus and technician and senior exams. Keeping the faith, maintaining a constant purpose, and working to improve his firm's offerings are principles of W. Edward Deming upon which Stephen has modeled his company. Joe, we'll go to you for the first question. All right. Welcome, Stephen. Do we, let's make sure we've got you unmuted here. Hello, Stephen. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have the international perspective. <laughs> it's good to be here. All right. Now, uh, we wanted to get a little background, if you would, on, on your company and you know why you chose to get started in the restoration business. I haven't had a chance to chat with you before, and I'm curious yeah. uh, if it was a family business or something else. It uh, yes, it start, I started it uh, as Cliff said in the early eighties, um, really late late seventies, as a carpet cleaning business, and um, we um, realised at that time that there was uh, work and, and business opportunities in fire and flood restoration, and we started to um, started to get involved in that. But pretty soon we found that we were lost and didn't know what we were doing. So um, we we, we uh, there wasn't the internet in those days, but we. Um, searched around a bit and we found uh, an organization um, now strangely called AIDS International um, as ASCR used to be called and um, in the early 80s we um, came across to uh, South Carolina to a, a two-day um, conference um, and um, with what we learned there and the various uh, other contacts I made there we were able to um, to really um, thrive in this particular sector and it's um, really continued as a, as a family business, um, now employing about um, six technicians, so fairly modest size. Um, through those years, through various um, difficulties and changes in the industry, but um, we're one of the few independent companies surviving in the UK. So you were, you were one of the pioneers in the UK, I guess. I think, I think we, we were really. Um, it was, uh, it was not, a, not a business sector that was really recognized, and... Um, some of the um, carpet cleaning franchises, I suppose, notably Service Master, were, were doing a little bit, 
um, all through that time. But um, but uh, no, we were, and we were able uh, uh, to do that because of uh, because of the support we had from from um, RIA as it, uh, as it is now, um, and uh, what we learned through through those through that organisation. So, have you been continuing? I understand you and Cliff just met not long ago at the RIA conference. Have you been continuing to come over here every year or every couple of years for the conferences? Traditionally, yeah. What often happens is that there's a gap for various reasons. Um, the last two years, actually, we haven't been over um, because of um, challenges really in the business and um, some of the changes with the insurers, which I'll probably talk about later. But um, basically, yes, keeping in touch with um, intermittent and, um, and uh, basically regular visits, yeah. No, actually, Stephen and I met probably when he first came over at, at that event, probably in the 1980s, and we've had a relationship, um, you know, run into each other at meetings, both in the United States <laughs> and actually uh, in the UK. I think people in the United States, Stephen, are fascinated with royalty, and uh, I'm just wondering, have you ever had an opportunity to work for someone who was a member of royalty or a client that was perhaps famous or infamous? <laughs> well, we're doing a job for a baroness at the moment, um, and um, we checked out how we should address her, you know, and if she's a baroness in her own right, um, we can, we should call her baroness, um, whatever. But if she's married to a baronet, then uh, apparently we don't address her as baroness. So um, there are rules about these things. Um, and uh, <laughs> ladies, and uh, of course, um, Prince Charles is um, Prince of Wales, but he's also the Duke of Cornwall, which is the county that we live in. So he, there's um, the duchy, as it is called, um, owns a lot of property here. So we are intermittently working for for the prince, but we don't often meet him. Have you ever worked on a property that was either historic or, or noteworthy, you know, a castle or you know, something like that? Well, we, I mean, there's a property um, very close to us here, which is, um, dates its uh, history back um, to um, the time of Elizabeth I, and, um, and that's just um, half an hour's drive away. So the housing stock generally within, the, um, within this country is, is made up of a lot of properties that are um, of great historic interest. Um, you know, 400 years old and more is not uncommon that bits of the property date from that time. And um, and actually, in the general housing stock, there's a lot of property that ordinary families are living in, which dates from um, uh, maybe 150 years ago. And these um, properties are built without the benefit of modern building regulations. So they um, offer some quite um, challenging uh, uh, problems, basically. Well, I, we don't have you know quite as many older buildings. What's the the difference as far as the building technique can you give us a little description of the more common type of building technique in buildings that old yeah sure um i suppose uh in the parts of um england where central england where you may have seen uh, shakespeare country for example you may see holiday brochures of these um, buildings that are have got um, white walls with um, black timber externally timbered and that they're a sort of timber frame um, so timber frame construction wood frame construction is, is um, a part a type of building method that was used um, some hundreds of years ago but the type that we have in our area um, is uh, really um, there's a lot of um, cob construction and that in its um, purest form is really just like a mud house effectively where the cob um, or clay material is um, built up to form the wall about three foot thick and um, then it's um, plastered with lime plaster on the outside and the inside to make it weatherproof and another but more common method of construction which a lot of people are living in these houses uh, maybe 20% of the housing stock around here is um, property that was built in the Victorian time where the method of construction is um, a stone um, either in and out of face and rubble and soil um, filling in between the stone um, so that uh, the, then the interior wall is, um, is rendered and plastered. You know, one of the things in the United States, most of our housing stock, you know, probably um, 
it's going to be since the country, so since 1776 or maybe shortly uh, before that. You know, in the UK, you can you know run into buildings that could be a thousand years old. You know, Westminster That's Abbey right. and places like that, and it's you know just incredible. Well, I, I guess what I'm wondering, Stephen, is if I use this term drywall or sheetrock, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I know what you're talking about, but we would call that. Um, um, plasterboard, um, drywall, really plasterboard, or uh, well, chiprock we would call plasterboard, and um, drywall we might call dry lining. Um, the, the method of construction, um, timber timber frame construction, which I think you call wood frame, is um, it's growing in popularity, and I think that's broadly similar to your own, except that here the external face is often brick. Okay, but so so essentially, they're now beginning to use what you what we would call drywall or sheetrock, and you would call plasterboard or gyprock. They're beginning to use this in the UK as an interior construction material. Yeah, yes, they're using it um, increasingly as as a total you know, as a total building method um, because of its advantages: uh, speed and insulation, um, added insulation. Are you getting? This usage on the, you know, we also see a lot of use of these materials on the exterior of buildings, and now they're using what they call the dens glass, which doesn't have the uh, paper lining on it, but it has a fiberglass lining on it. Do you see that type of construction as well now becoming more popular? As far as I'm aware, the externals are um, usually masonry or brick of some sort. I think that's possibly to keep uh, some sort of traditional appearance from the outside. So not very. What about uh, stucco? Do you have synthetic stucco or regular stucco exteriors as well? Not, not, a, not, not a lot. No, I think it's pretty rare actually. Interesting. Interesting. You know, if I say toxic mold or, or stachybotrys, um, are these things that uh, restores in the United Kingdom are dealing with because the general population is aware of black toxic mold? Right. Um, I think that uh, the general population is is not too aware of of that. Um, with the internet, of course, they they can um, find out. But there's not a high level of awareness amongst the general population, and amongst restorers, of course, everyone is aware of um, of these issues. But I don't think it has um, the significance um, and, and the status that it has in in the U.S. Do you think that's because uh, there's not as much of a problem because of the building techniques or people just aren't as worried about it or a combination of both? I think it's, um, yeah, it's probably a combination of both. Um, the, the more traditional building method, which has dominated up until recently, has been for the building to be constructed of brick, um, two brick walls with a small gap in between. Or, or, or masonry concrete blocks, and um, those materials, if they're rendered inside, they're not obviously going to support the mold quite so much. So um, altogether, there's probably um, not the same degree of problem because of the different method of construction, and maybe not so much litigation um, driving some of it, um, or at least exposing the issues um, to more popular, um, you know, to, to, to a wider audience, really. You know, we consider restoration in the United States a subset of what we would call indoor environmental quality. And I think we used to call it restoration before, and we really never thought about it. And it seems that in the United States today, uh, many of the disaster restoration contractors are also indoor environmental quality contractors as well. They're involved in inspection, they're involved in remediation, uh, and so on and so forth. And what I'd like you to do is maybe contrast this um, dual specialty in the United States where someone b- does both disaster restoration and it, you know, has a leg in this indoor environmental quality industry. Is this the same in the UK? No, I don't think it is. And I think it's a very um, interesting and, and important perspective that I, I've been really interested in, um, in for, for my own company. But generally, the industry at the moment is is a long way away from that type of uh, model um, because I think of the um, structural changes that have been forced on it by changes with insurers. I think it's um, a little bit debilitated and um, I'm hoping that it's uh, ready for a renaissance really and and I think this could be a very fruitful direction because it's an important subject. 
So I'm curious if you have um, industrial hygienists or certified industrial hygienists. I'm not that familiar with uh, the AIHA's reach, and I'm not sure if you are. Um, do you sometimes run into people who specialize in diagnosing these indoor air quality problems, and then they bring you in to help remediate them? Or do you have people that generally do both? Um, I'm aware of some specialists who um, assess those situations and make recommendations, and um, but there aren't very many of them, and so it's a very um, it's a, not, not a very um, regular occurrence to come across those those people really um, altogether. It's um, like I say, it's really quite um, an underdeveloped subject here. The, the awareness amongst insurers is that mold is potentially an issue and. If we come across a situation where there is mold, we generally don't meet resistance to uh, um, a proposal for correct remediation um, because of the the fact that the um, occupants are potentially at risk. And so there's enough awareness, I think, uh, our experiences, there's enough awareness amongst insurers and the general population to make a to enable a proposal for correct remediation to be carried out um, without a lot of resistance. So, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, but I don't know that every company like ourselves are making those proposals. I'm not sure about that. I think probably not. I, I wanted to go back for just a moment before we left the uh, building science issues. And uh, in the United States here, you know, wall-to-wall carpeting is kind of the, the big thing. Do you have, um, are, are you seeing a trend toward more wall-to-wall carpeting or are you using, you know, are you seeing hardwood floors or uh, what's more popular there? Uh, it's been a big move away from carpeting towards um, laminate flooring and, and various forms of wood flooring and, um, and that's been now for some years, I think probably about four years or so. So maybe the pendulum is about to swing back to carpets because um, some people argue that they're more hygienic to have than um, than hardwood. I, I guess uh, thinking back now, you did in, in the introduction mention that you started out doing carpet cleaning. So I'm, I'm assuming there's quite a bit of uh, carpet, at least, uh, you know, from the last 50 years or so. And uh, so I guess that's uh, something that you do run into quite a bit is carpet. Yes, oh, definitely. There's a lot of carpet. I mean, carpet is, um, is is a popular floor covering, and what we have over here probably traditionally has been a lot more woven carpeting and um, Axminster or, or um, Wilton woven carpeting um, than, uh, than than you have in the U.S. Um, and so it's um, it's it's very common, yeah. Uh, but uh, laminate and hard floors are um, certainly have grown in popularity recently. We had Lisa Wagner on, and they, they did a lot with rug cleaning, I guess. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have a lot of that as well and how you handle that. Do you clean them on site or do you take them off site? He would be talking about, Stephen, he would be talking about like an oriental rug or an occidental yes, rug. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, we generally clean those in our plant here. We have some facility for doing that. And um, if um, it's something that we're considered beyond our competence or, uh, or perhaps it requires a repair, then we would send that away to a specialist and there's a couple of companies in London that we would use. Okay. Let's, let's, if we could uh, go back to your introduction, you had started a group called the British Damage, or co-founder of the British Damage Management Association. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about what that group's for and uh, what, what the purpose was and maybe what you, how, how you modeled it? Yes, yeah, I'll be pleased to do that. I think everyone that's involved with the BDMA and involved with its um, foundation are very proud of the outcome. It, um, I was a co-founder and there were um, uh, about um, probably um, six or eight other co-founders. Um, this was, um, um, these were representative of uh, companies within the, with, across the industry. So there was a, a great consensus. But it isn't a trade association as many people think it um, think it is. It's a certifying authority for recovery and restoration technicians. So membership of the BDMA is by examination, and the membership is individual membership for that technician. Um, what we were able to achieve in the early stages um, was to get credibility, really, um, even though a young organisation. And we did this, achieve this, I think, by having on our advisory board representations from the um, Chartered Institute of Loss Adjusters and also from the 
insurers association so it um positioned us in the um in the community and um amongst professional bodies as a as a credible organization and this has really um been something that's um been quite remarkable really how um we've managed to achieve this in a short period of time so consulted by government departments and um and the media for um for advice and um and authoritative answers and now we're in a happy position really of having um a development director who is not um tied up with any of the uh contractors uh, operating in this sector so we are um moving forward again now um to 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 new horizons so we're um, all very pleased about that and next year we'll be authorizing licensing training licensed training centers and um, publishing a manual and a reference um, document for um, for technicians. One of the things we hear in the United States, I'm not sure whether this is accurate or inaccurate, is that the BDMA is dominated by the large players in the United Kingdom and that the mom-and-pop disaster restorers are not involved. Could you comment on that? The um, members of the BDMA are the technicians, so... You could say that, um, that, that that which company they work for is is not relevant. Um, but I understand what you're saying. Um, which is what what I think has happened is that the um, members of the board have tended to be employees of the larger companies because those companies were able to free them for sufficient time to um, to commit to the um, committee meetings and things, and also. Um, their interest in it was greater because they had more technicians. But the underlying problem, the underlying situation that really is could or could give rise to that comment is that the mom and pop restoration business is something of the history books. You know, there, there aren't any left. Um, this is the tragedy, really, of the last few years. And so, um, so there, there are no mom and pop technicians, really. I mean, there are a few carpet cleaners who are doing a little bit, but pretty pretty underdeveloped com- co- companies are not able to access the the work unless they have um, thought through very carefully how they how they um, market themselves and how they get hold of the work. So generally, they're they're feeling that they've been denied access to this work. Well, I think now might be a good opportunity to talk about you know some of the changes in the insurance market in the UK. Mm. If you would like to comment upon that, yeah, sure. Um, about seven years ago, the insurers, um, I suppose you could say like most good businesses, decided to look at its supply chain and to try to regulate it and, and um, uh, to try to reduce the number of suppliers for efficiency reasons. And they handed this task over generally to purchasing people who were from outside the industry, which I think is um, probably why it ended up as it has, as it has done. And um, they tended to move towards setting up um, solo agreements or, 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 or contracts with maybe two companies in this sector to cover the entry level for, for being considered for those contracts was that they could cover every postcode in the country. And um, this, this model, once it was established, um, just simply at one stroke with one decision, if you like, eliminated um, regional companies. And um, so... First of all, the insurers did this, and then the loss-adjusting companies um, who would be working for some insurers perhaps who didn't have a supply chain established, um, they themselves uh, established their own supply chain on the same model, which was a national model. So then the other side of it was that the companies that were were sort of national had to become truly national and that stretched them so the customer seems to have dropped off the end of the uh, <laughs> um, the whole thing and um, has ended up with um, stretched services and companies that were committing to serv- levels of service that they perhaps couldn't provide and um, and I think this summer has really with this flooding that we've had this summer has really highlighted the the challenges that the um, that the customer faces in dealing with this type of arrangement because many people were left without any service for months yeah that was something I noticed in a in a paper you wrote that um, because of the way the insurance had been restructured a lot of people were left pretty much stranded and I assume a smaller uh, 
restoration companies like yourself could have helped these people, but it, uh, that was the impression I got. Is that accurate, that you weren't able to get out yes. and do as much as you would well, like? Well, that's, that's the shocking thing, really, as far as um, the insurers um, are concerned. I think they've realized it as being um, a serious omission, that that there were resources, there were um place uh, people with equipment and technicians um, who weren't able to be used because they hadn't been pre-vetted and um, so they tended the customer um, tended to be encouraged to think that they weren't free to use these companies so it was um, very unfortunate we we did secure quite a lot of work because we've really learned how uh, the reason we're still here is because we've learned how to work around these difficulties mainly by getting instructions directly from the property owner but not everybody understands that you can do that i think we have a, the the exact same problem here and that we have to uh, learn you know learn from your problems and how they were solved and also do the same thing here in the united states mm-hmm. we've got uh, it seems to be trending that way and now i think we're seeing a trend coming back and some of the there's actually been one state that has banned the uh, preferred provider yes uh, I, I, yes i'm aware of that i think the um Probably one of the reasons is, uh, certainly I, can, I can't speak for America, but I can for here, is a failure to understand uh, what part we play in the, whole, in the whole thing, in the local economy, in the communities, and, and with the individual insured persons. We've thought through this quite a bit, and we, we consider that our role is to give people their lives back, um, because in effect, when they lose access to their property, their lives are effectively put on hold. And so... Um, when you when you do that, when you lose um, access to your to your normal routine, um, there is um, there's, there's, an, there's an emotional and um, physical challenge in that. And so the work that we do is 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 important for the community, I believe. And and I think the other aspect of that is that it isn't uh, possible to um, operate in this sector without being able to accommodate. The, the complexities that are involved. So one of the difficulties of, one of the reasons why the supply chain people thought they could operate on, on a national scale was because they didn't understand that, that to adequately service the needs of people in their homes and businesses, they needed, a, they needed to have lo- local companies with adequate resources to deal with all the variety of challenges that, that were faced by these people. So basically, we've ended up with a situation where the insurers and the supply chain managers think they're satisfying those needs because they get the management information that tells them that somebody arrived at the house within so many hours, that somebody called the customer within such a period of time. But what they didn't realize is that these companies operating on a national level weren't capable of delivering the service that these people needed in the end in their homes. So I think really the, the, the part of the solution is to, which we're working on here in the UK through the BDMA, is to 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 make it clear to our um, customers and to the insurers to, to to really try to get them to fully understand the important role that we perform in um, it, and 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 of course that it has um, a financial justification in in reducing secondary damage. All right. Well, Stephen, let's. Uh, we have a segment we do called the IE Connections. What's news? We've got a gentleman who you may be familiar with, Glenn Feldman, on the line. And uh, All right. if we could bring you back in just about five minutes, and uh, be great. Glenn may have a question for you as well. So, right. CJ, let's go to uh, Mr. Feldman's intro if you've got it. news is so factually boring. I get assignments that any could do. I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I'm mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be a leader of men. Okay, Glenn, we have you on the line. Hello, how are you? Great, how are you? I'm doing really good. This is a great interview you've got going on this thank morning. You. I almost didn't want to come on the show. I want you to keep going. <laughs> well, thank you. We've got a nice line up on the line here. But uh, we had to get in the What's News segment. We haven't had you in a while, so what's new, Mr. Feldman? 
Well, there's a lot that's new. I think the last time I talked to you, I just was uh, back from the IAQA convention, and uh, since then there's been a lot rocking and rolling in the industry. Uh, I had the, a great pleasure to be involved with something really unique um, right after the last show uh, when the fires began in Southern California. And uh, we got a call from Larry Hartman, who's with Washington Mutual, uh, does facilities work for uh, something like 40,000 properties that they own, that they desperately were in need of guidance. The public needed guidance. What do they do uh, when their homes have been uh, surrounded by smoke and soot and ash? They haven't burned down, but they're fire damaged. And we were uh, we put together a great partnership of some private industry companies, some associations, including uh, IICRC, up, don't get me the acronym, Police there, and uh, an IAQA Indoor Air Quality Association, Belfour Industries, uh, quite a few others who I'm, I'm forgetting put together, uh, just sent a bunch of resources. They were compiled, and 24 hours later, there was an internet guideline up uh, for consumers and building owners that ultimately made its way to the San Diego Convention Center and Bureau, uh, Visitors Bureau, was distributed out to the California Hotel and Motel Association, the California Insurance Board. And, uh, and, and many other uh, public and private agencies. And it was a great example of how associations can come together and help the common good. And in this case, you know, uh, you know, millions of people who had been driven out of their homes and were returning to find uh, their homes intact, but uh, still with uh, smoke and soot ash uh, in their ventilation systems and elsewhere. Well, we hope they heard about it on IAQ Radio, huh, Glenn? Absolutely. <laughs> right. That's right. So uh, beyond that, we've been looking at some things that are coming up uh, out there in our November newspaper, uh, Indoor Environment Connections. The uh, front page story by John Miller is about the California Air Resource Board. They have uh, pretty much put the ban out on ozone, uh, that is to say ozone uh, that comes out of air cleaners. Um, the uh, September 28th, the California Air Resource Board banned uh, such air purifiers saying that studies have found they can worsen conditions such as asthma that the marketers claim they help to prevent. Now, a lot of this um, is, is, is commonly associated with the Sharper Image products, and that's probably because of the high-profile lawsuits they've had, but there are many other products out there that are marketed as air cleaners, which in fact produce uh, high levels of ozone or even small levels of ozone, and California is wiping them off the market. Effective, I believe it's uh, 2010, production must stop, and sales, I think, have to stop next year. So it's a, a pretty uh, dramatic bill. It's going to change the air cleaning industry for sure. And uh, I imagine uh, things tend to start uh, west and move their way east with these kinds of laws. So I'm looking for this to become a national standard before too long uh, as, as individual states or perhaps even the federal government adopts it. Speaking of government, that's a, uh, our at-press time story in November. Uh, believe it or not, the state of Florida, which was uh, on everybody's radar screen over the summer when uh, Governor Crist signed the mold legislation, they really haven't gotten started at all on what this regulation is going to mean. In fact, a uh, fellow named Tom Ricci, who's a, a member of the uh, advisory board for uh, a chapter of IAQA in Orlando, he got in touch with the Department of Business and Professional Regulation, which by, uh, according to the statute, is supposed to set the laws for this thing. And they referred him over to the Department of Health. Oh. They told him they should talk to the Department of Health. Uh, ultimately, he was told the answer was, uh, well, this law takes effect in 2010. You should check our website a couple months before then and, and uh, see what's up. Wow. And uh, that's not an answer that people are going to live with in this industry. But um, just interesting to see that uh, the regulation passed and, and the uh, regulators themselves really haven't gotten started with it at all. That is interesting. That'll be in the November issue. That's in the November issue. It's a, it's a, um, like I say, it's a, a at press time story because we just got this report out of Florida a few days ago. Yeah, I haven't seen my November. I've been on the road, so it's probably in my mail at home. It's actually either in 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 your, in your mailbox or or on in route. Um, we also have two interesting interviews, and I'll close with these. Um, both of them related to um, HVAC system cleaning in one way or another. Uh, the first interview is with Tom Yacobellis, who's recently elected the IAQA president. He talks a lot about his goals and visions for IAQA in the coming year. Uh, and then we have an interview with Michael Palazzolo, who has started a new duct cleaning franchise called Duck Pro. And uh, this is a guy I've known for about 20 years. He was the president of NADCA back in the early 90s and uh, probably the largest residential duct cleaner in the country. And after years and years of training people, he's now gone into the franchising business. So there's a long interview with him talking about why he's done that and, and what it's going to mean to the industry.
And where is he out of? He's out of uh, Michigan. He's in, uh, uh, I think he's in uh, near the Kalamazoo area. Uh, okay, interesting. Now, what about next month? Can you give us a tip on what you're working on real quick? Well, our December issue, uh, we do two things. First of all, it's our annual buyer's guide. It's a fantastic place to get uh, resources for any type of tool, equipment, or IAQ service you might need. It's something you should put on your shelf and leave it there until till the next one comes out 12 months later. But what's also great about our December issue is it, it's what we call the best and worst of the year. We go out to our editorial advisory board, which is uh, made up of uh, about 20 of the, the brightest people in the industry, and we ask them what's the best thing that happened in the industry this year and what's the worst thing that happened in the industry this year. And the perspectives we get are always fascinating. Uh, people look at it from their, usually from whatever their uh, main interest is, so if you have some engineers or industrial hygienists or filtration specialists, they'll talk about things that were exceptional or exceptionally bad in their industry. So it gives you a good overall perspective of, of where things are going. And what I'm, I'm really starting to see, we've got a few returns that have come in, a lot of comments about the, the market overall being a little bit soft right now within indoor air quality and restoration. And I don't know whether that's a, a result of the summer droughts or the economy in general, but we're seeing a lot of people comment that uh, uh, just business is not as robust as it has been in the past. Okay. Are you going to be able to stick around and join us for the roundup, Glenn? Absolutely. And I have a question for the roundup. Uh, throw it out now or I can save it to the end. You, you, uh, you can let me know which one you want me to do. We'll save think? it. Save it. All right. Great. All right. We'll do. We're going to bring Stephen back here in a moment. We want to uh, get a little, another little musical interlude. Is that the correct term? I think sound clip okay. would be more appropriate. Sound clip, here. thank you. CJ, CJ, always coming up with something. We're big fans of Monty Python. <laughs> Stephen, do we have you back on the line? Good morning. All again. right, great. Great to have you back. Okay, go ahead, Cliff. I know you had a question on yeah, that. Yeah, Stephen, when I was looking around your website, um, uh -huh. I, I noticed some information on something called the Control of Substances Hazardous to Health, or COSHH. How does this relate in the U.K. to fire-related residues? Well, that's a very interesting question because um, my, my position is that these regulations do apply to um, fire-related fire residues. I don't think everyone um, sees it that way because they're really um, mainly targeted at uh, chemicals and the sort of chemicals that people pour out of a bottle, as it were. And they require that a risk assessment is carried out before those uh, chemicals are used. And a risk assessment is um, a process that um, requires the way in which they're used to be um, defined to prevent harm. Um, but the uh, but fire residues, um, because they are um, arising in the workplace and for some for, for employees working in post-fire situation. The control of substances hazardous to health um, requires you carry out a risk assessment then of the fire residues, which means that you have to consider in what way they could be a hazard. And that's quite difficult with um, fire residues because we don't know what the constituents are. So the short answer is that um, as far as I'm aware and, and the people I've consulted in, that, um, in, the, in the health and safety industry, uh, the cost regulations, as they're called, do apply to fire residues. Now, who who enforces these cost regulations? I'm not familiar with the uh, enforcement structure. Well, the enforcement is really if something goes wrong, um, oh, really? then, okay. then you know that you know that you, know, <laughs> you, you, know that you didn't um, do it properly. Um, so that the onus of responsibility, and it is a criminal liability uh, with criminal punish, you know, criminal law punishments, is to um, comply with, with the law. And the law requires that you have recorded um, cost risk assessments for all the uh, chemicals which to which it, to which you would need which you need to have a cost risk assessment for. So what the company has to do, what we have to do, is to have a, a, a risk assessment um, documented and to provide evidence of um, training the people in awareness of those risk assessments and, um, and uh, evidence of having um, implemented them. So is there an agency similar to our Occupational Safety and Health Administration uh, in, in the UK? There's the Health and Safety Executive, which um, 
is, is a government um, department that would investigate a um, an incident that resulted in an in injury, but there is no um, there's no auditing. I see. So it's all reactive, no, nothing proactive, essentially. It, it, uh, that's what I understand. Yeah. Okay. Great. Stephen, in the United States, in certain states, such as California, in mm -hmm. order to make structural repairs, you have to have a contracting license, and you have to take a test, and you have to go to school and, and kind of learn to, to prepare for this. In the UK, are all the trades, are these trades, do they re require licensing, that you have to actually take an exam to be a plaster or carpenter? Carpet uh, I think it would be a really good idea if that was more wide, widespread. Um, it only applies to electricians um, and um, plumbers um, where they're dealing with gas installations, as far as I'm aware. So it wouldn't apply to joiners or bricklayers or, um, or, or, or decorators, for example. I'm curious also about the, um, you know, we, we had the Donnybrook, I guess, uh, a couple of weeks back at the Restoration <laughs> Industry Association. Are you seeing the same types of uh, uh, heat drying technologies and other technologies being introduced in the UK? Yes, I, I, that's a really exciting development over here because I think they've got more to deliver with our a common type of building structure than even they have in the U.S., uh, where you have mass um, structures, concrete walls, or even stone and soil, if you like, um, or brickwork, the um, the heat um, drying technologies will um, will greatly assist what would otherwise be a protracted drying period over over weeks and weeks. So I, I, they are they are growing in popularity and they are very effective. Stephen, I noticed on your website that you have a large trailer. Um, I think you call it wet to dry, which I think is quite a brilliant name can you tell me on what principle that machine works is that a heat drying system is that a desiccant yes drying that is system? yeah we, we we've um worked with a um a local engineering development team um the kruger air team and they've um done some work for us during the 90s really and they've um developed um the this um um equipment we've got four of these actually and um they uh it works it's an, it's basically produces a large amount of low humidity air uh, at um a controlled temperature um one just quick question on uh, drying equipment I, I know that your temperature you know you, um england is not known for tropical climate uh, what I'm wondering is, is it too cold for refrigerant dehumidifiers to work effectively in the UK? Uh, that depends entirely on whether the um, property is heated and whether it's a winter problem. So generally speaking, most of the ordinary work we're doing is in properties where there is um, adequate heating. But um, in the winter time, um, that can indeed be a problem because the refrigerant dehumidifiers don't work very well below sort of um, 15 degrees centigrade um, and um, pretty ineffective below 10. So um, you're right, that, that can be a problem. And the desiccant dehumidification, um, uh, obviously dries have got a number of products there and some products coming out of Europe are gaining in popularity here. And um, in particular for drying something, and I'm not sure you've got a lot of this over there, um, insulated floors where we may have a concrete slab, then polystyrene and then a uh, two-inch um, cement screed, and um, in water damage situations, that insulation becomes very wet, and so there are some really um, interesting uh, combination um, equipment uh, machines that combine a desiccant dehumidifier with a high-pressure compressor, so you, you, you blow air under pressure with very low humidity and low grains into that insulation for a couple of weeks and it dries it out. And then that would involve probably drilling core holes. And, you know, I know in some parts yeah. of Europe they have something called esteric, I guess, which is like a cork substance that might be used. Do they use that esteric or cork in the UK as well in older homes? Uh, it's, it's not very common. I think in Europe there's been a tradition of using insulation between floors in apartment blocks for noise transmission. So I think it might have been for a different purpose there. But um, during the 90s, the insulation requirements of new buildings, um, the um, U value of the whole building, has um, the standard has increased 
gradually each year, if you like, or through the decade. And the only way that builders of new buildings could achieve these total building insulation values was to put insulation in everywhere, if you like, and that included the floor. So, so these insulated floors are um, are now um, universal, really. Yeah, we've got a question actually texted in from one of our listeners. What types of insulation do you deal with? Could you just give us a quick rundown of the different types that would be used in the UK? Well, loft insulation is uh, the roof space insulation is generally this uh, rock wall or fiberglass. Um, although something called vermiculite, do you know it by that name? Yes, yes vermiculite. Yeah. Is um, sometimes used, but that's quite rare. The um, walls, uh, the cavity walls, which um, would be two two walls with this air gap in between, um, is quite a common building method, and that is um, often insulated with a blown polystyrene um, and generally under floors as I've mentioned uh, it's generally polystyrene uh, usually a two inch um, slab of uh, polystyrene what about fiberglass well fiberglass yeah that's used quite a lot that is actually used in um, the construction of new cavity walls where a block of um, a fiberglass um, will be attached to the outer side of the inner wall as the wall is actually built. So that's, uh, that's another way of uh, insulating those cavity walls. Do you run into cellulose at all? You know, used newspaper that's ground up and... Sometimes, but it's pretty rare. Okay. Um, I don't come across that very often. I guess there's some newer foam uh, insulations out too. I'm trying to think of the brand name. I think there probably are. There's probably something I'm not mentioning. Um, uh, a sort of a foamy, yeah, foamy material. I'm not familiar what what its uh, what its name is actually. Okay. And um, there's another question that I know Cliff had put this together, and I'm it just caught my attention. What is rising damp? <laughs> rising damp is um, it's really interesting that you asked that question in that puzzled way because um, we all know about rising damp. It's part of living on an island and having your feet, uh, you know, oh. wet a lot of the time. Um, basically, it's um, it, it happens when um, a solid wall, um, if you think about it, uh, block work, but, but maybe a stone wall built in the traditional way I mentioned earlier, is um, built directly onto the soil. Maybe the, maybe some of the topsoil is taken away, but more or less it's just resting on the soil. And there is no vapor barrier um, in the wall. So um, moisture um, soaks up from the soil through the wall to um, the height that it can achieve by capillary motion. And um, this then uh, causes a problem because the wall um, remains uh, damp and also as the water evaporates from the surface of the wall, it leaves behind the soil salts, nitrates, for example, and these are hydrostopic salts and they um, um, depo get deposited in the, in the rendering and so they, the wall kind of then picks up moisture from the air so it becomes quite a problem. Um, so basically it's because of older traditional building methods um, that didn't, where there was not a vapor barrier in the, in the um, bottom part of the wall. And are they installing that vapor barrier in the newer? Building. Yeah, all, 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 yeah. It's not, a, not a, it's not a problem. Rising damp is not a problem with any property built to modern building regulations. And modern building regulations for decades now have been rigorously enforced at every stage of the construction. So, it's just not a problem unless there's been a failure to put it in, which is pretty unusual. So, what, um, what owners of these older, we'll say, stone-built properties, stone walls and rubble will do, they'll contract with a company to attempt to deal with this rising damp problem by injecting um, a, a chemical layer, a, a silicon um, layer, um, across the wall at the bottom to tend to uh, slow this rising damp down. You know, as a follow-up to that, Stephen, does your firm deal with, you know, treating wood rots or getting involved with wood-destroying insects? Do you, would you do that as part of your job? No, we haven't up to now. Uh, it's not something we've um, we've actually considered. It seems a little distant from us at the moment. But uh, interesting idea. I will think about it, actually. Okay. Well, what I'd like to do is maybe move over a little bit and, and talk a little bit about this recent flooding. 
you know, that, yeah. that's occurred in the UK. You know, in the United States, uh, you know, I think that the president administration, you know, the president administration in the United States just caught hell for, you know, what happened after Hurricane Katrina and their inability to deal with it and so on and so forth. And I was wondering, number one, what does the citizenry in the UK expect? I mean, do they expect the government to come in and, you know, fix their house and give them money and, you know, do these things happen in the right. UK? Okay, just a small thing there. We're not citizens of the UK. We're actually subjects of the Queen. Okay, subjects uh, of the Queen. Okay, I'm sorry. That's something uh, mean, not everybody realizes. We're not, we're, not, uh, we're not particularly pleased about that, but that's not <laughs> I don't think I would be either, Stephen, but that's, uh, that's an interesting Hell, I like um, you. With, 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 with no written constitution either, so, um, so it's all a bit uh, vague over here. Um, Maybe that's part of the uh, part of this answer as well. The um, actually in in the in the U.S. do the insurers cover flood damage, storm damage? Oh uh, yes, you you can buy you, you can you buy can it. buy that yeah depending on. The... But it's actually a national program, and what happens is there's you know kind of a pool of insurers, and um, they charge fairly high rates. The the, the coverage is limited. And, um, you know, there's kind of like a government uh, insurance program that, that backs this up. But in the United States, we had situations where people were not insured, did not have flood insurance. They were expecting mm. the government, you know, to go in and clean up their house and buy the new belongings or build them a new house and so on yeah. and so forth. And I was just wondering whether subjects well, of the Queen were expecting the same thing. I think the way I understand it, and I'm not an insurance expert, but I understand that um, some decades ago the insurers agreed to include flood and storm damage as a standard peril on every policy really unless excluded so it's a it's standard cover and um the the deal was with the government that they would spend money on flood defenses and the insurers have recently been claiming that they don't want to continue with this because they don't consider that the government are um doing enough um putting investing enough in flood defenses um there have been a few things that have happened, really, um, with the conflict of policy. Some of the flooding around Hull, I uh, spoke to some people there. Hull is this city in the north um, northeast that was flooded, South Yorkshire. Um, 10,000 homes, I think, were flooded there. And there was some suggestion that a lot, of, a lot of runoff from the fields was occurring because farmers are now, under the um, agricultural subsidies coming out of Europe, being paid to... Um, allow ditches to support um, natural, um, to, to be wild, if you like, and not to be kept clean. So um, they would support more variety of wildlife and plants and things like this. And the knock-on effect is that they're not, not, they weren't draining the land so well. So there's some suggestion there that government policy, if you like, was partly contributing to the problem. And then the other problem from where, where, where the government did give financial support to certain areas because the people weren't insured then the people who were insured were saying well you know i'm a taxpayer and uh, <laughs> why weren't they why didn't i'm insured and, and um why should i be paying for the people who weren't insured so um some things are the same worldwide aren't they <laughs> <laughs> uh it must be fun being a politician well, Stephen, uh, before we roll on to the roundup section, is there anything that, that you wanted to add that we missed, and, and can we get some contact information for listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, no, I think uh, altogether um, we've covered quite a lot, and I hope I've given a, a good um, understanding of the way things are over here. I think with regard to the comments that I was making about the way the industry is, what we know through the, the British Damage Management Association and, and our contact with the restoration technicians is that um, the technicians working for these national companies, all the people involved in this sector, really the world over, are well-motivated, keen, enthusiastic individuals. And I think it's an exciting profession, and I've enjoyed it, um, being involved with it over these decades and enjoyed meeting the people that are um, working in it in this country and in the U.S., and um, as far as um, what I've drawn from the United States has been, and um, really starting in the early 80s, is obviously um, um, with uh, many meetings with Cliff and training sessions, learned a huge amount from him. And of course, Marty King, um, which is uh, kind of goes without saying from the first what time we met him in um, South Carolina. And indeed, the hospitality extended to me when I stayed with him um, in his home in Washington on that same, same trip. 
But um, there's also another name I wanted to mention, which I think has been pretty pivotal to me um, in the development of some of our, um, our systems, and that is Major Long, who I met in the early 80s um, in Atlanta. And I learned from him the and learned, and I learned the ability, if you like, to um, present what we were doing in a detailed and, in, and, and um, um, sufficiently detailed way to justify what we're doing. And I think that um, was, was really important for our success. Uh, in later years, we've um, learned a lot from the Europeans, and um, in particular in Scandinavia, where there's a really interesting model which um, we're exploring here, where the um, Industry, restoration industry is closely allied with the fire service. So the fire service, the, the fire marshal, will call in a restoration company to take over the damage control from um, from the fire service. So that's um, something we've benefited also looking um, to to, um, to Europe. So uh, I think I've covered everything. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk. I've really well, enjoyed that's, this. Well, that's you just hang on. Yeah, that? that's something I'd like to maybe we could talk a little more about later on a, a future show as the, as that yeah. develops. That's uh, something we really didn't talk about and we'd like to. Stephen, if you can hang on, we're going to do what we call the roundup here. We've got a little okay. intro music. I know Glenn Feldman had a question for you, so uh, okay. let's uh, head her on up. Round her on up there, uh, CJ. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Right, we got the roundup. Glenn, do we have you back? I'm back, All and right. I got my question. Okay. Uh, here on, hello, how are you? Very good. Here on this side of the pond, uh, water restoration contractors have an American national standard, the IICRC 500. Is there a European or British standard that uh, contractors follow uh, in your side of the pond? Well, I think the um, IICRC standard has quite a lot of credibility here. Um, there is a, another standard which is um, um, the forerunner to a British standard uh, for drying. The, I think you may have heard of it as the PAS 64. So, um, so there are. Um, so basically, uh, the IICRC is um, regarded as an authority uh, standard, and there is another one that covers a slightly different sector. Um, as far as the BDMA is concerned, there are some um, basic standards produced by that organization. What was that, the PATH 94? I, I didn't... PATH, 90, PATH 64, I think it is, isn't oh, it? PATH 64. Yeah, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cliff? Well, two things. First of all, Stephen, that was cowboy music. That whip you heard had nothing to do uh, with S&M or bondage or <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to thank you really for remembering Major Long. You know, he really was uh, very pivotal in, in my career, and uh, you know, I, I just kind of wish. Yes, I, I, I have a debt of gratitude to a number of people, and I would put him on the uh, on that top list for, for myself. Absolutely. Hell, I like you. <laughs> okay, Glenn. Anything else you wanted to add before we've got to uh, close up things here? I just want to add that the international perspective uh, has been great on this show today, and I, I certainly encourage you guys every uh, every once in a while to bring in uh, some folks from Asia or South America or Europe because uh, it really has been a great show. Thank you very much. All thank right. You. Well, thank you, and thank you for joining us, Glenn. And be before we go, Stephen, I did not get a chance to give listeners the uh, information for where they could either get your website or contact you directly if they'd like, okay. or if you if you right, would mind. Right, yeah, I... Um, our website is uh, www.richfords.com, so that's R-I-C-H-F-O-R-D-S. And my email is Stephen, spelt with a V, Richford, all one word with no dots, at richfords.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us here this week, Stephen. We really appreciate getting your perspective perspective from uh, from the U.K. and uh, look You're forward to meeting you in the future. Yeah. Yes, right. same here. Okay, well, that's uh, another episode of IAQ Radio. This is Joe Hughes saying thank you so much to this week's guests, uh, my co-host Cliff Slotnick, and looks like uh, next week, by the way, 
we will be taking the holiday off. So Cliff and I, Cliff just wrote me a quick note. Hey, don't forget now, next Friday we're off. But uh, right. we're going to take the week off next week. And then the week after that, definitely, you want to come back. I've got a really interesting uh, terrorism and disaster restoration uh, guru that will be on. Uh, he does training worldwide for police departments, fire companies, governments, etc. former uh, I can't say three-letter name uh, or uh, agency member. <laughs> so, Most impressive. <laughs> if I told you, he'd have to kill me. All right. So this is Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, my co-host Cliff Slotnick, our cyber jockey CJ Zach Slotnick, our technical director who's over in Vietnam somewhere, Dr. Dieter Wow. He'll be back, I believe, when we get back from Thanksgiving. And, of course, our sponsors and our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks. We've got a nice lineup on the, on the board here today. Thanks for joining us, and please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next, well, two weeks from now at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 